we are about to enter one of Meredith's favorite times of year. The time of year when I have both soccer and basketball games recorded on our television. And that's because the basketball season starts this week. Lakers Clippers is set up to record on the old DVR Tuesday night. I was listening to a podcast previewing the season this week where the guest was a former NBA coach named Jeff Van Gundy, who is someone I followed over the years because his dad, Bill, and my grandpa coached together for decades at a high school in Northern California. And so the Van Gundys, meaning Jeff's parents, were close family friends when I was growing up. Jeff is a common guest on some of the podcasts I have in rotation, and he is hilariously predictable in one area, which is that he is always on the side of the coach. If there's ever any question about who is at fault for a team's failing, well, it's the players or the organization. And if there's any question about who should get credit for their success, well, it's the coach, obviously. Jeff has been shaped to see basketball like a coach. He grew up watching his dad coach basketball. He's coached since his early 20s and high schools and colleges and the pros. His friends were coaches. His heroes were coaches. And all that shapes the way he sees a situation where a coach is being criticized. He knows all the challenges that might prevent a coach from doing what all the critics are saying he ought to do. And he knows how much work it takes to be successful. He has been shaped into a coach-shaped person, if you will. What has shaped you? You probably could name people, experiences, influences that have helped form you into you. And that issue, what is it that shapes you, is the one that Jesus is getting at in the passage from John 3 that we're looking at this week. This is a familiar one to many people, but it's often misunderstood too. And so I want us to go into reading it with that question in mind, what shapes us? There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader among the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus said to him, Amen, amen, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being begotten from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into a mother's womb and be born? So this Pharisee comes to Jesus at night, probably at least in part so as to do it secretly. But John draws attention to the fact as a way of highlighting that those who are in darkness are seeing the light of Jesus, that Jesus's signs are bearing witness to who he is. And playing on this idea of Nicodemus being in darkness, John shows him being unable to understand what Jesus is saying to him. It comes at the end of verse 3, where in the original Greek, John gives Jesus' words as having to be born ek anothane, which has two primary meanings. One is born again, which is how Nicodemus understands it, and ironically, how many English translations translate it. And we can see that this is how Nicodemus understands it, because his reply is to wonder about how an old man can be born a second time, born again. But there's another meaning, too, and that is the primary one that Jesus is trying to get across, and that is born from above, or as Marion Mai Thompson translates it here, begotten from above, because she wants to highlight that it is the source of the birth, not the birth itself, that Jesus is calling attention to. So begotten from above. And we can see that this is how Jesus is meaning the phrase by his response in verse 5. 
Jesus replied, Amen, amen, I tell you that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being begotten of water and the Spirit. For whatever is begotten of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is begotten of the Spirit is spirit. Begotten from above is clarified in these verses as being begotten of the Spirit, because Jesus is using from above as a metaphor, you know, up there, the heavens, where God is, begotten from there. Jesus is referring to the source of the life, life that comes from God through the Spirit, as opposed to life that comes from the world. And it's important to note here that Jesus is not saying physical world flesh bodies equal bad, but spirit equals good. That's been a common misreading of Jesus's words over the years. Instead, he's asking that question, what has shaped you? Is it this world or is it God's spirit? Because only if you have been shaped by God's spirit, is it possible to experience the life of the kingdom of God? This is similar to Paul's words in Romans. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed. The patterns of this world naturally shape us, but the inevitable outcome of those patterns is death, not life. And Jesus wants us to have life. Riley was a fairly high maintenance baby, and I was spectacularly terrible at handling it. Uh, especially when I felt like I had done the right things, quote unquote, and it just hadn't worked. He was still hungry, not eating, and screaming his head off. And so was I, usually. It was far and away my darkest stretch as an adult. And after a while, and much later than Meredith would have wanted me to, I went to see a therapist. And one of the things I came to realize is that somehow I had been shaped to believe that competence is what matters, knowing the right thing to do in whatever situation and then making it happen. And here I was confronted with the most important thing I'd ever had to do, take care of this baby, and I didn't know what to do. I had no idea how to do it right. And so I took it out on Riley as if it was his fault because clearly I was not the sort of person who was incompetent. I had been shaped by the world. And had I continued down that path, it would have led to the death of my relationship with my son, eventually. But when I, very imperfectly, I assure you, when I opened myself up to being shaped by Jesus's grace, which means my competence does not affect who I am, that reality then allowed me to extend grace, both to myself and to Riley. Many of us, I'm sure, can think of times when we or others around us have been shaped by the world, maybe by a belief that security in the midst of scarcity is what really matters. And that leads inevitably to anxiety and striving. I remember being floored by the sheer number of fellow students in college who were terrified that they didn't really belong at a place like Harvard, that if people saw through the the facade that they had put up and realized who they really were, that everything would just get yanked out from under them. And then the life of security they had been shaped to believe was all that really mattered. That wouldn't be available. And so they kept striving, eaten away by fear the whole time. When we allow ourselves, on the other hand, to be shaped, as Meredith said a couple weeks ago, by Jesus's abundance, when the sense that there will be enough 
even if enough looks different than we originally expected it to, then the possibility of peace opens up before us. Humanity has been shaped by evolution and culture to have a deep sense of group identity. We need to protect our tribe, those like us. We've seen with no doubt that this leads to literal death all the time. Wars between nations or gangs have their roots here, as does a political inclination to vote for the best interests of people like us, even when it would be better for others, people different than us, if we voted differently. The Bible has a consistent refrain that those living as a part of God's family are to be shaped into a people that transcends this completely natural human tendency. Kindness to the stranger, the alien, the marginalized is central to who we are to be. We are to be shaped into people who open up the goodness of God to all. And the opening ourselves up to the spirit is crucial here because that is where this alternate formation, this shaping takes place, where we can be shaped by the spirit instead of the world. It can happen in different ways. I was at a retreat once where we were doing an imaginative prayer exercise and the facilitator instructed us at one point to turn our eyes towards our hearts and see what God showed us there through our imagination. And I was surprised to see this image of my heart being tied up tightly with belts wrapped around it. And in reflecting on it, I had this realization that what I think God was trying to show me was that somehow I had been shaped to believe I needed to protect myself, protect my heart, that if I kept it tightly under wraps, I wouldn't get hurt. I don't think I'm alone in that, but that only leads to isolation. And one of the things I think God was trying to show me was that that fear of being hurt would only undermine the things God was wanting to do in and through me. Jesus, of course, gives us a very different picture and would shape us were we to let him into people who love freely. I think these examples, thinking about how we are shaped by the world or by God's spirit, and the natural outcome of that shaping one way or the other, I think that helps us understand maybe the most famous verses in this passage. Starting in verse 16. Yes, John 3, 16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but rather to save the world through him. No one who believes is condemned, but those who do not believe have already been condemned because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, but people love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. I've sometimes wondered about that connection between belief and eternal life, on the one hand, and unbelief and condemnation, on the other. It seems a bit strange that by thinking the right things in my head, I get this massive reward. While if I think the wrong things, I get this massive punishment. But when we think in terms of shaping, being formed, I think it makes a lot more sense. See, belief is an easily misunderstood word in English. Belief to us largely means something intellectual, what I think to be true. But there's something similar here to born again and born from above from earlier. Because the root word 
that is translated believe in Jesus also means trust in and have faith in. Belief, faith, trust. They're all the same word in Greek. So why does this matter? Well, I can read a book and believe that an airplane can fly, but I don't put my trust in an airplane until I climb on board and it pushes back from the gate. Believing in Jesus is like that. Not simply intellectual, it is reorienting your life so as to live as if Jesus really is God's one and only son, opening up God's kingdom to all. It's to live as if his words really are true, that following his teaching and example does actually lead to life. Or maybe more accurately, it is to open ourselves up to God's spirit so that God might shape us into people who can experience the life Jesus offers. It is to allow ourselves to be shaped by Jesus instead of by the world. No one who believes is condemned because those who believe by definition are living their lives open to God's spirit, which leads to a life of abundance and peace and justice and reconciliation and love that can be experienced now and just keeps on going eternally. Those who do not believe are condemned already, not because Jesus is mad at them and punishment is coming, just you wait, but because to live a life shaped by this world is to live a life of loneliness and anxiety and striving. It's hell, isn't it? God is good. The life Jesus is offering us is good. And as this passage reminds us, it is available to all who allow themselves to be shaped by God's spirit. But there's one more crucial piece to all of this, and maybe the piece that is most misunderstood from this passage. That life is not, cannot be isolated. This is not a passage about a bunch of individual people thinking the right things and then getting life. It is about people being born, begotten, into the family of God, about Jesus bringing all people into God's family to form a community who together embody this life that he is offering. God's intention is for there to be a people, a community that is begotten from above, that is living in a way that is shaped by God's spirit together. And if there are little outposts begotten by the Spirit, living out the fullness of God's abundant love in their relationships with one another and towards their neighbors, living sacrificially, opening their doors wide to all the diverse people God is inviting to come to know Jesus, following Jesus in doing justice and in becoming who God made them to be, all because they are opening themselves up to God's Spirit together, If those outposts were to exist, what an impact they might have on this world. We want to be that sort of community that is shaped by God's spirit because it is made up of people who are shaped by God's spirit. And Leslie is going to lead us now in one practice that might help us to let God's spirit shape us and shape Pomona Valley Church.